big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we begin today, we want to thank everyone who came out to our live show, both in person and virtually. It was so awesome getting to meet you all and talk about Wishbone. And if you missed this one, don't worry, because we definitely want to do it again. It was so much fun. And for those of you who missed the live show or don't follow us on social media, we have announced our next book. It's Persuasion, so get your copies of that ready, though we still have a lot of Emma adaptations to get through. And speaking of Emma adaptations, enjoy this week's episode covering episode three of the 2009 Emma miniseries starring Ramala Garai with our guest, Zachary Grady. This is Becca. This is Molly. We are here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here specifically to talk about Emma! Listeners, if you're new here, I, Becca, have read and watched many Jane Austen-related things in my lifetime. And I, Molly, am doing that for the first time through this podcast. If you want to hear Molly read through Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility for the first time, you can listen to seasons one and two of this podcast respectively, but that is not what we're doing here today. No, today we are talking about Emma 2009, episode three, and we are joined today by our pal, Zachary Grady. Hello, Zachary. Hello. I'm so excited to be here. We've been foaming at the mouth for an opportunity to bring you back on the podcast. Listeners, you may remember that Zachary here is the mastermind behind Gay Pride and Prejudice, an amazing Jane Austen podcast that uh, makes him officially, I think, the king of Jane Austen podcasting (laughs) at this point. (laughs) Oh, I love that. (laughs) I'm so excited to be here. I have spent like it's been over a year and I keep listening to your show, like in the back of my mind saying, oh, I hope I can go back one day. And so when you reached out, I was, this feels like Christmas. I'm like, I'm so excited to be here. Yay. Oh, that warms my heart so much because we kept being like, oh yeah, we have to get Zachary back on the podcast because it was so much fun to discuss gay pride and prejudice, but also it's going to be so much fun to discuss things where uh, they're not so blindingly perfect that we can only just uh, admonish our adoration. Sorry, I'll stop sucking up now. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> so because this is your second time on the podcast, uh, we have a list of second timer questions because you already answered all those questions that we always ask our guests about Jane Austen. So question number one is sort of, would you refresh our audience on your relationship with Jane Austen? And on top of that, also maybe talk about how your relationship may have shifted as to Jane Austen since last time you were on the podcast. Yes. Um, Like so many people, I just, I don't even remember how I fully discovered Jane Austen, but I always say that I just had so many friends that loved her and loved, were always reading the books or watching the movies. And it just sort of happened like through osmosis that suddenly I was watching the movies and then reading the books and then going down the rabbit hole. And then now I'm on the other side of having adapted Pride and Prejudice, which 
I'm such a nerd where like when I adapt something, I go deep and I, if I show you my copy of Pride and Prejudice, it's like completely falling apart. And I feel like I've, not to sound so poetic, but like it feels like when you dive in someone's work so intimately, you you feel like you know them in a way. Mm-hmm. And as a writer, reading another writer so closely, I would say on the other side of it, I feel very lucky to be in. I mean, it's a big club, but it's small with people that have adapted her work. And, you know, it feels like a friend at this point. So now I sort of look at all Jane Austen in a different lens and. I mean, watching this Emma with all of you, it's like I'm just so influenced by Pride and Prejudice on such a deep level. But yeah, it's like I went from being a fan to sort of feeling in a way like maybe a friend because I've spent so much time with her in the way that the two of you have. So yeah, she's a part of my life. That resonated really hard, (laughs) actually. Good. (laughs) Yeah, because I mean, when you spend so much time with her posthumously, Mm -hmm. her words are just so fun. She feels like she's in the book club with us, you know? Yeah, and you sort of see, I don't know about the two of you, but you definitely see her influence on so much later work and oh, yeah. um, just how many people are are adapting her without realizing they're adapting her. Absolutely. And she also really did invent the comedy about women tolerating men. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Who is your favorite Jane Austen character to hate? I love to hate Caroline Bingley because she's just like so much fun and every adaptation every version every like film or play you see you can just tell whoever's playing them it's so delicious and you're like watching an actor just revel in playing that role I also want to go out on a little bit of a limb here and say something which maybe people will scream at me in the comments for but I believe in a way that Jane Austen because she wrote Caroline Bingley before Emma I have this sort of feeling that she like wrote Caroline Bingley in such a sort of a two dimensional way and then was like, let me go into that character. And I think that's what we get with Emma, where Emma's like from some perspective, I feel like Emma might come across as Caroline Bingley to people. Mm -hmm. And I kind of that's why I kind of love that Jane Austen challenged herself and went and did that. I actually really love that take. They're both clueless. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that there is no more fun than watching Caroline Bingley at work because like Emma, she is such a vulnerable character Mm -hmm. and so mean at the same time. Yeah. And I think like, yeah, before people attack me and say that I'm crazy for having that comparison, I just think like you get Jane Austen writing her as the villain in Pride and Prejudice and then she has to be so much more dimensional when she's the protagonist. Anyway, I digress. Yeah, I think it's more fun to write a villain who you root for and that who you can understand the inner workings of their mind and that who you love also. Yeah, 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 yeah. Also, I will say by the time this comes out, we'll have done our live show and we are covering Pride and Prejudice Wishbone. (laughs) The woman who plays Caroline Bingley in that adaptation is giving like 8,000%. Yes. She is the choreographer. Also, really? Yes, because at oh the end, God. they did the, a little like behind the scenes and they were like, the dancing is very important in Regency Air films. And I didn't even realize that was her. Yeah, you like see her going like one, two, three, one, two, three. I was like. <laughs> well, we only have one more. And um, this one's, I guess, a bit of a thinker. But what 
Jane Austen content is currently speaking to you the most, like in this moment in your life? Well, I don't know if this is the answer you're looking for, but it's the answer I'm going to give. <laughs> I, I just went to Metrograph here in the city and they played the 2005 Pride and Prejudice in uh, the theater. And it was, I went just to be like, I've never actually seen it in a movie theater and went with two friends and it was completely sold out. And the moment it began, I was like, oh, this is about to be like seeing Rocky Horror with an audience. Like <gasps> everyone here is clearly in for the right reasons. But oh my God. what I didn't realize until about, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes into the movie was there were all these people who clearly hadn't seen it just on based on how they were laughing. And it was very obvious to me that either people brought their partners or I don't know how they got there, but there were people that did not know Pride and Prejudice and did not know this film, but they knew Matthew McFadden from Succession. And so what happened was like there was a whole population of the audience that was coloring Mr. Darcy with Tom from Succession. And it was like mostly men who were laughing in this way, who I think came on a date, not to genderize it, but it's what it felt like. And they clearly loved Darcy from the moment he arrived. And it like changed the whole story in kind of an incredible way where like, I don't know, we were kind of rooting from Darcy from the get go. And it sort of was like Kira Knightley who this is Darcy's movie now. And so it was just really one of those rare moments where you see a movie that you've seen and then uh, the actors later work totally changes their performance because now it's like all of Darcy's sort of weird nervous tics kind of feel like the lovable things that Tom does in succession. So it was really fun. Also, it was just incredible to see a movie with people laughing at all these moments that I thought were funny on my own. And like this one tiny moment where Georgiana gives Darcy a side eye, like a, mm. like a whole <laughs> belly laugh in the audience. And I was like, whoa, that's incredible that almost 20 years later, it's just it's incredible. So um, I would say that piece recently really it was so incredible to revisit an adaptation and have it be new like it was a new it, it's been changed because he's so iconic as Tom and you could tell half the audience was like we've known him for we've known he could do this for 20 years so calm down <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that's so beautiful that's really wonderful that's very heartwarming it also reminds me one of my closest friends from like elementary school has never read Jane Austen, has never watched anything about it, much like, you know, my friend from college, Molly. Mm -hmm. And she watched Succession and then decided on a whim to watch the 2005 Pride and Prejudice. Mm -hmm. And she was like, I didn't know Tom could be the heartthrob yeah. of a movie. Yeah. And that inspired me to watch Succession because I was like, I can't imagine Matthew McFadden being anything less than a heartthrob. And then I watched Succession mm -hmm. and I was like, well, he has range. Yes, he, he really does. <laughs> also, just... You saying that about your friend discovering it. I do feel like the 2005 Pride and Prejudice is a gateway drug to Jane Austen because I think people have their opinions about it within the community and everyone's allowed to have their opinion. But I do think that it serves as a way for many people to be like, oh, Jane Austen's fun. And that movie has brought at least our generation, like a lot of people, it was their first piece of it and I do think it's the best way to introduce somebody to the world 
that is true but also recently the 2020 emma has yes. kind of also taken up that role and yes. i'm really looking forward to showing it to my girlfriend because she watched the 2005 pride and prejudice and we were on an airplane and i did kind of have to like get her at a time when she couldn't leave uh-huh. <laughs> but she's actually like looking forward to watching the 2020 emma just based on the aesthetic of it and that might just be a personal taste thing because they're both very specific aesthetics but they both are doing a similar thing and we've talked about this on the podcast before but they're both just somehow with some je ne sais quoi bringing Jane Austen to the masses and I don't know like what magic they have to do it but they do it and it's funny you say that because I was thinking recently that we're overdue for sense and sensibility to get that treatment to get like a really modern like plush adaptation that just sort of speaks to Gen Z like it needs to speak to the younger generation and I think we're we're ready to do that and so hopefully someone's doing that (laughs) yeah ooh, you're so right because the movie version of Sense and Sensibility which we love and of course like (laughs) it's you know it's great um but it has a BBC masterpiece feeling yeah and it needs like a modern pop feeling in the way that the 2020 Emma does yeah I think the difference is with the 2005 Pride and Prejudice and the 2020 Emma, those two are movies Mm -hmm. in their own rights. They're trying to do something separate from what Jane Austen was trying to do. And they're telling the story, but through a very, very, very different medium and lens. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, the 1995 Emma Thompson, Colonel Brand, um, Alan Rickman adaptation, which I personally am obsessed with, is very much the kind of movie that is trying to simply translate Austin's intent to screen very, very well, Mm -hmm. but certainly not trying to bring any sort of specific new form to the story. Not to drag this one question out, but have you seen the video where Emma Thompson is doing an interview and she shows her first draft of that sense and sensibility? No. No. She brings it on stage and it's in like a file box and she says, no one ever sees this version of a script, but this is the book transcribed like into a screenplay. And then she explains that the process from there is that you you parse it down to be a movie, but she picks up like a file box and she's like, this is my first draft of the Sense and Sensibility script. And it's, I don't know, however many pages, but I forget what the interview's on, but it's really cool. That is really interesting. And I think like, when you think of something like that, it has every single plot point. And so mm-hmm. to trim it down, you're just kind of removing bits and pieces and trimming it. Mm-hmm. Whereas with other movies or other adaptations, you're finding new pathways to get from point A to point B. Totally. Instead of like taking the spine and taking things out to make it shorter, you are writing a new spine that hits the same like middle points. Yeah, totally. Yes. And that's adaptation, baby. (laughs) And this adaptation is one that is much more book accurate. Yes. But um, starting out, this 2009 version of Emma premieres on the BBC starring Ramal Agrai and Johnny Lee Miller. Um, Zachary, before we dive into the plot, any thoughts on this uh, miniseries from what you've seen so far? I have one thought that I just need to get out of my system, which is, I didn't know about this one. And so I pressed play and was like, what do I know Ramal Agrai from? 
And I was like, oh my God, she's middle Bryony in atonement. And I fully lost my mind and was like, whoa, there's some sort of like metaverse opening here where she's played opposite Kira Knightley in another movie. And so I had to go and watch their scene together where you have like Lizzie Bennett and Emma playing different characters fighting. It blew my mind. And so um, also, if you really want me to nerd out and just derail us for the rest of this interview, um, I went on this whole thing where like Bryony and Emma, I could do a whole TED talk about how like their similarities and how they're privileged girls who make mistakes and like one's way worse than the other one. It just so I went into this color talking about like coloring Mr. Darcy with Tom from Succession. I watched this Emma just thinking of Bryony from atonement. And I digress. That's so that's what I'm bringing to the table with this adaptation. No, that's fantastic. Because I have to be honest, I haven't seen atonement. Me either. So I come to this Emma, like blank slate as like she is Emma Ramala Garai. And you are the first person who has brought up another performance of hers. And I did not know she was an atonement. All right. Well, I will be watching that for sure. Should we talk about uh, this movie? Oh, I think we can. Okay, I'm cool. excited. <laughs> so this episode, episode three, starts with Mr. Knightley walking to cello music again, which is our favorite thing. And Emma is walking through the town with Mrs. Weston saying that she knows that Mr. Knightley does not like Jane. And she's like, because you brought it up again. And I love that they just have been talking about this over and over again. And she says... Her career in matchmaking is over, but she is absolutely positive that he doesn't like Jane. And I just want to set up at the beginning of this episode, you should play a drinking game and drink every time Emma says, my career in matchmaking is over. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like a lot of times. Yes. And once again, the It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia music plays underneath her as she's saying it. Yes. Mrs. Weston is like, I don't know. I think that Jane would be a pretty nice mistress of Donwell. And you see her running away with her imagination and Jane playing the piano in Donwell and this golden light radiating off of her onto Knightley's face. And they're walking and they go to the Bateses to go look at the pianoforte that has been gifted to Jane. And it is so cramped in there. Mm-hmm. It's like as if they've been they have moving boxes and it's just like seats and the piano and no other space. So you can really get a sense of how much they did not need this piano or how thoughtless the rogue is that sent it over. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thoughtless. Ex- exactly. Which is what Knightley says when he comes over and he's like, this was a <laughs> thoughtless gift. And Emma looks at uh, Mrs. Weston and she's like, hmm, what do you say to that? And she's like, well, OK, maybe he didn't give Jane the piano but he really seems concerned for her welfare. So I also really love the way that Miss Bates stops Knightley on his horse to say, come look at the piano. And I was thinking, I want to live in a world where someone getting a new instrument like stops traffic. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that would be fantastic. I will say also, Mrs. Weston Mm. in this scene, this is the first time this occurred to me, but no wonder Emma's terrible at matchmaking. Mrs. Weston is like, yeah, I'm setting up Knightley and Jane and I'm setting up Emma and Frank the entire time. And I'm like, oh, she learned it. 
from Mrs. Weston being terrible at matchmaking. Oh. Mrs. Weston, who has not a bone in her body, can tell when people have chemistry because she's watching that dance later and she's just like, oh, look at those two best friends dancing together. So they're all at the Bateses and Miss Bates thanks Knightley for sending over a barrel of his favorite apples, which are Jane's favorite. And Emma is like, ooh. And then later, Emma is at Randall's with Frank and the Westons. And Frank is saying how much he loves Highbury, but there isn't enough dancing for him. And he proposes a ball. And this is the first time in this episode, but it happens a couple times where Emma looks directly into the camera and says, I say yes. (laughs) She's like, looks into the camera so many times in this episode. It's kind of incredible. (laughs) I also not sure it's (laughs) happened before this episode. Yeah, I didn't notice it before. So they're trying something new in this episode. (laughs) Yes. And you know what? It's working for me. (laughs) Uh, So they go to scope out the crown in and he's like, let's test out the dance floor and sweeps Emma off her feet and starts dancing with her. And I like my first thought was, isn't that improper? But the Westons are just like looking at her smiling like, oh, how cute they're dancing together. I think maybe in the context of dancing, it's okay, but I don't know. I would also say might be one of those just minor historical inaccuracy moments Mm. from the adaptation to show us the exuberance with which the two of them want to dance. Yeah. I also think this adaptation does a really good job of showing how exciting dancing is. Like later in the episode when Frank Churchill is so excited about dancing. I was like, wow, yeah, this is the first time I've seen a period piece where like, I understand that dancing is the most exciting activity that these people have in their lives. Yeah. Yeah. And I think really what drives that home more than anything for me is Jane Fairfax's reaction to dancing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because she comes in to look at the ball or the ballroom and she's like, oh, Miss Woodhouse, this is the best thing ever. Can you imagine a ball here? Protect this version of Jane at all costs. She is a little cherub in this adaptation. Yeah, I love her. So then Emma is at home with Mr. Woodhouse and Mr. Knightley, and Mr. Woodhouse is concerned about the draft at the Crown Inn, and Emma's like, it's going to be great, and Knightley is being grumpy about it. He doesn't like dancing. (laughs) And Emma's like, well, you're, you're only being grumpy about this because Frank is the one planning the party. And he doesn't really give this notion any weight he just like kind of looks at her and she's like well I have one thing that'll be exciting to you Jane Fairfax is very excited for this ball and he's like I don't he's just like letting her flit about I also think this is the scene where she has on a blue dress with like a pocket watch necklace thing and I was just watching it being like this feels like someone in Bushwick today it just (laughs) felt felt so like modern yet a little thrift story and I thought a lot of Emma's costuming in this feels like someone with a kind of retro-y style today. Yeah I agree with that. I think it goes with her sort of 2010 bride hair as well. The hair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, uh, yes the hair in this in this adaptation. Everyone's hair. Yes I mean I have to say um, also that Mr. Woodhouse is serving Ebenezer Scrooge in this scene mm. and that is a quote directly from Mike who was walked through yeah he had that. a little what's his it's like his little sleepy cap mm-hmm. the bauble it's like the nighttime teddy bear tea hat mm. I don't know what they're yeah, called yeah a little night hat a sleep hat I don't know <laughs> <laughs> sleep hat is it called a nightcap 
Oh. I don't know. Um, this would be something to Google. Hang on. Because I know what a nightcap is, and it's not a hat. Yeah. But maybe maybe the drink is named after the hat. Yes, it's called the nightcap. It's called wow. a nightcap. Wow. Now we will always think of Mr. Woodhouse whenever someone says nightcap. Yeah. Let's have when someone says you want to go have a nightcap, I'm gonna be like yes, and then I'm gonna put on my hat and go to sleep. <laughs> make sure make sure you put on that like robe as well. Oh yeah. So you can match. You cannot go without matching your nightcap as well. Of course, of course. But. Back to the discussion of Emma's outfits, I think it's also, I think this adaptation really takes the point that Emma's been in Highbury, sheltered her entire life with that much to do, really, really far. Mm -hmm. And if I were going to give a generous reading to her costuming, which is a little Tumblr girl tries to go to a Jane Austen convention, it is a little like she has like a few really, really expensive dresses and she wears them over and over again because she has no reason to get new ones. I was going to say the same thing. There was a lot of outfit repeating in this series so far. Like she just she wears the same thing a lot or she'll like add a chemise underneath. Like she does that later this episode where she's wearing the green dress with the red stripes on it and she's got no shirt under it. And then she has a shirt under it later, like either the next day or later that day. And you're so right. It just shows that she's like, well, I'm not going to go shopping like she's not she's not vain which is something that I think a lot of other adaptations like make her out to be very vain physically and it's something that Knightley says he's like you're not vain when it comes to your physical appearance or anything like you just think that you're better than everyone but like she doesn't think that she's hotter than everyone necessarily I think she thinks she's hotter than everyone but also doesn't need to try at it (laughs) well exactly Mm. which she's not wrong but you know (laughs) No, Ramala Garai is so hot. Yes. <laughs> so Knightley says this thing where he's like, well, I know I'm not going to be on your dance card, but we know who will be. And Emma's like, mm-hmm. And then we cut to Frank brooding over a letter from his aunt. And it's a very quick cut. We cut it away to Mrs. Weston talking to Emma and saying that Frank needs to talk to her alone. And she's like thinking about it. She's like, oh, my God am I in love with with Frank Churchill? And she looks into the mirror and she's like, is he going to tell me that he's in love with me? How should I look to be in love with him? And she like practices her in love face in the mirror. And she's like, no, that's not right. And it's very funny. And then he comes in and he's like, goodbyes are so hard. And I don't know when I'm going to come back. And all of the stuff, he's leaving forever. And he's being very dramatic about it. and. He's especially sad that the ball won't happen. He's like, why didn't we seize the moment? Why are you always right? And he grabs her hand. He's just giving every indication that he is in love with her. So obviously she's going to think that. And he grabs her hand and she's like biting her lip at him. And she says, you're going to come back. Don't worry. And she tries to make this little joke at Miss Bates saying like, too bad you weren't able to visit Miss Bates. I'm sure she would raise your spirits. And he says, well, I was already there um, this morning. And she's like, oh, okay. And then he starts to tell her something. But he cuts himself off. Normally in the book, someone comes in and cuts him off. But in this one, he just chickens out because he's a fucking wiener. I don't know. what. Did, why? <laughs> well, Frank Churchill is a wiener. Mm-hmm. That's like... If we're going to describe him any anyway, that's that's who he is. 
I don't know. It was a choice. It was a change from the books. But I don't hate it because he is in agony of sort of like having the secret. But I think this Frank, while playing off some of the assholery of Frank Churchill, does a better job of maybe showing the pain that Frank is going through trying to keep this a secret. Mm -hmm. And I think this moment is one of those moments where one could read this very obviously. Emma does read this as he's in love with Emma. And I don't think she's crazy for thinking that. But if you look at it from the perspective of, you know, the performance of Frank, it's this agonizing moment where he is tortured, keeping the secret to protect Jane's reputation. But at the same time, he started to really trust Emma and he wants to unburden himself of this secret. Mm -hmm. That's true. He is like, I, I have a very warm regard for Highbury. <laughs> he like wants to tell her. Um, my notes say somehow Frank walking to cello music doesn't hit quite the same because then he walks away and there's the cello in the background and I'm like, okay. It's because he doesn't have the boots that Knightley has. Knightley has the two-tone riding boots and that mm. for me is, that's it. <laughs> mm. Yeah. You know, that's actually true because I was noticing and griping in my brain about the shoes Tra Frank Churchill was wearing. And I, the Knightley shoes were better. You're right. Knightley has nice boots and it really does the trick. <laughs> and he strides. Yes. He says, I like to stride out. And he does. He strides. <laughs> Johnny Lee Miller took it so seriously that Knightley loves walking as a character trait and every time he's on a walk he looks joyous <laughs> yeah so frank leaves emma gets very emo and she's like this feeling of listlessness and boredom and everything is terrible now <laughs> and this is where there's like her it's like a bunch of quick cuts with her running around and talking to herself and like laying on the bed that's very soon. Okay, that's where I thought we were. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. This is her kind of just like meandering about the house, looking at things and being like, why is nothing beautiful anymore? Yes, yes. Which like I get like when something has gone terribly wrong in your life, you're like, oh my God, this is awful. But to her, she's like, I must be in love. Mm -hmm. I, I was going to say this is a bit relatable because who, uh, who amongst us hasn't mistaken being bored for a crush at some point in time? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I always mistake being bored for being hungry. But I do, yes, also being in love. Not mutually exclusive. No. A lot, of the, a lot of the time I'm both hungry and crushing on somebody. <laughs> so true. So Harriet, we see going for a walk and she sees Mr. Elton or she sees a carriage pass by and she follows the carriage and it's Mr. Elton's carriage and she sees him get out and he has this woman with him and he says like welcome to your castle or some shit and kisses her and then like picks her up and goes yeah and <laughs> <laughs> carries her across the threshold it was like da -da 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 -da, George <laughs> <laughs> I just wrote down oh poor Harriet yeah she's really conveying the level of heartbreak that's you know just devastating her at every moment of this film yes yeah it is really sad. She like turns and runs away and Emma comes to see her. Oh, wait, before we move on, a patron in our discord pointed out that Mrs. Elton, as she's being carried across the threshold, is wearing Caroline Bingley's dress from the <gasps> 1995 Pride and Prejudice. One of Caroline Bingley's dresses, but the one with like the giant shoulders and the red and black vertical stripes. Wow. That's a great catch. 
yeah, it was very brief. And then everyone in the Discord was like trying to find the picture. It might not be the exact same dress, but it is very similar. And I think there's enough um, overlap in a lot of Jane Austen adaptations. They'll like recycle some dresses or some set pieces and stuff like that. And people are always catching those. And I think this just might be one of those situations. And I feel like that's got to be intentional. Like they clearly know what it was used for. So they say like, oh, well, Mrs. Elton can wear this. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. I'm obsessed with that. The villain girl dress. It's like a it's like a theater company having a costume shop. That's incredible. Yeah. Amazing. Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. Speaking of characters we love to hate, Augusta. Elton. Augusta. Mm. <laughs> um, Harriet goes home and Emma comes to visit her and comfort her. But I have to note that Emma does make it all about her. Yes. She's like, she starts by being like, for my sake. No, I'm sorry. I mean, for your sake. But then yeah. she just drops that and continues to talk about herself. She's like, it's just, so, this is the worst thing that could happen because of my mistake. And like, I've been punished enough by your sadness, basically. I love this moment, though, because then Harriet's like, no, you're such a good friend. You're the best friend ever. I will be better for you. I will be tranquil. And then she picks up that book with those like shaking hands to be tranquil. <laughs> Have you ever tried to read when you're depressed and you just stare at the book? Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That is where really mindless YA fiction really, really comes to the forefront. It's perfect for feeling a little depressed. Yeah. Something you don't have to think too hard about. No, no. I want my brain smooth while I'm sad. Yeah. So at church at some point, I don't know if it's the next day or when, Everyone is just sitting silently and who should come in but Augusta Elton, our favorite person. I want to I wanna call Molly out here because of what she's about to say about this performance of Augusta Elton. Her first thought was, oh, she's so cute. Well, to be fair to me, she's adorable. No, yeah, the actress is lovely. 
and she's very good because and why I think she's such a good Augusta is because she's not so over the top with it as the other ones where they're very much playing at her upward climbing social mobility like oh well this you know blah blah blah, blah. this one is just like I don't know there's something about her that's so natural and she just falls into this character so well. I don't know how to describe it, but she just, she's so annoying because she doesn't know she's being annoying. She's behaving in a way that you can't call her out on it. It's subtle enough that it's, it's still annoying and it still would be impossible to be around, but it's not, you can't write her off in the way that maybe, not to directly compare adaptations, but I love uh, her in the 2020, but it's also like, She's such a caricature in that version that you could just write her off. I also noticed that they styled and they're all blonde, Emma, Harriet and Augusta. Like they're all similar enough. I thought Mm. that was intentional. Yeah, Mm, definitely. And I thought that was really an interesting choice. I think it it definitely is a little bit of a focus on Mr. Elton because it's almost like there's these interchangeable women. The only big differences between them are his, their level of interest in him and their class status. Yeah. So it definitely, I think there was a definite effort to make the three of them sort of resemble each other. And it's also interesting because Jane doesn't. Mm-hmm. She's not like other girls. <laughs> <laughs> so we cut to Augusta visiting Hartfield and talking about Maple Grove and she's going on. She tries to tell Emma that she needs to get out more. And Emma is like, okay. And she does this claw hand thing, which is the first time that she does claw hands, but not the last time that she does claw hands in this episode. She like beckons her into the other room with her hands kind of like, (laughs) I can't, it's an audio medium, but you understand. Do you want me to take a picture of what your hands are doing right now? Yeah. (laughs) All right. Done. Thank you. So... Uh, I've just noticed that this Emma has this way of moving her arms that are kind of like flailing, which I love because she's kind of awkward. She's such a chaotic Emma. Yeah, Yeah. I love I love watching her because it's it's like a theater performance, which is kind of something I love about these BBC adaptations is they they don't treat them like films. Exactly. You're almost watching like a live piece of theater in the choices they're all making. And I really enjoyed watching one where the protagonist is just performing for the back of the house. Like her Emma is really giving it and the facial expressions, the arms. I Oh yeah. And it makes you love her more because she's just, she is strange and awkward and um, clueless. Yes. (laughs) 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 So this is where, Augusta says the thing about like, oh, and who did we see? We saw Knightley and Mr. Elton shouldn't be ashamed of his friend. Knightley is quite the gentleman and blah, blah, blah. And then we get the shot that you were talking about earlier, Zachary, of Emma just storming through the countryside, looking at the camera and saying like, like, how dare she talk about Knightley? I don't even call him that. And she flings herself down on the bed. Unbelievable. I've never seen anything like it. Yes. And it, so it comes out of nowhere. Like, I was confused at first as to exactly what, like, I, I was like, is this voiceover? And then I realized, no, she's actually walking and talking. And she's, like, not looking directly at the camera. It's like she's looking just beyond the camera. Just to the side of it, yeah. Yes. And I went back and rewound this section just to be like, what is this choice? And I love it. And there's some really fascinating choices here 
with the cinematography and just the way that things are blocked. This was the first one where I was like, what? What is happening? This felt like in the 1995 Pride and Prejudice when we get the floating Mr. Darcy head in the window. That's what this moment felt like to me because there are some adaptations of Emma where she goes on this rant and she's talking to Harriet. I mean, it's like- Or Mrs. Weston. Or Mrs. Mm -hmm. Weston. It's very similar to the 2020 Emma where she's talking to Harriet and Harriet's just not paying attention. Mm -hmm. And Emma's like, wait, no, that was in, was that in this one? I think it's in both the the 96 and the 2020. I think they're giving it to, I don't remember if it was Mrs. Weston or it was Harriet. But Harriet's like checked out because she's depressed about Elton still. Mm -hmm. Yeah. in, In one of them. So anyway, she's like talking to herself regardless but in this one, they were like, let's just take out the middleman. Yeah. Let's have her just rant. And I love this also because they've established within the framework of the story already that they have this like voiceover framing device for Emma to talk to herself with. So they don't even need it. They <laughs> were just like, we're going to give her a monologue and she's going to run through the town of Highbury screaming at the top of her lungs about hating this woman all by herself. It also worked for me, though, <laughs> even though I sort of made it like I was confused. (laughs) It does also, in hindsight, work for me, though, because I do believe that Emma is someone that talks to herself when she's alone. Oh, yeah. She doesn't have anyone to talk to. So, of course, she does. Like, we all talk to ourselves during COVID. Let's not lie. Like, you talk to your dog, but you're really talking to yourself. Mm -hmm. She does the same thing. To the extent it works, I think it's because of the catharsis of coming off of the tension that Mrs. Elton builds up very quickly, because as we've sort of alluded to this Mrs. Elton is beyond irritating Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it feels cathartic for Emma to scream it while we're watching as the audience being like yeah Mm -hmm. we hate her too (laughs) totally so later we get Emma venting to Knightley and complaining about Mrs. Elton and and she says well you don't need to pretend to be upset that the ball was canceled and he's like okay I won't but it is really you know bad luck for you because I, I don't think you get out enough. And she looks at him like very like, what? Do you agree with her? And he then pulls out a book and he's like, I brought you this book. And I melted because how much more romantic can you get? And she flips it open and she sees a picture of Box Hill and she's like, Box Hill. It's like this magical, beautiful place to her that's so outside of her reach. Just leading into that uh, sheltered nature of Emma. And he says, you know, we're in the same county. It isn't the moon. You could go there too. Very sweet. Then we cut to Jane writing a letter as the rain is coming down outside and looking kind of distressed. And I mean, we know who she's writing to, but it has this air of mystery about it. Like, who is she writing to? And she goes outside to mail it and it's raining and she has an umbrella and she runs into John Knightley. And John Knightley is being very bubbly. Did we notice that this John Knightley is a very happy man? I didn't want to say anything before, but in our first episode, you were like, John Knightley in this version is so mean. I don't like it. He's so grumpy. Well, he was in those episodes. And then he comes back with, oh, hey, what's up? Yeah. Yeah. He's just very cheerful. And he's like, oh, well, I see you at the party later. Like, we must be on our best behavior. And she's like, Okay, I've liked this Jane because she really um she doesn't really take shit. I've noticed. Um he tries to tell her that she should get out of the rain and she just kind of looks at him like, "Okay." And he's like, "I guess I'll be on my way then." <laughs> and like goes walks away and she continues on her 
business to the post office. Yeah, Jane is so grounded in this adaptation. She's for such a like a, a piece that can be so fluffy and uh, completely a comedy. Like this Jane is really like she has both feet planted on the ground the whole time. Yeah, I think this adaptation takes more seriously the Frank and Jane storyline than any other adaptation mm-hmm. that I have seen of Emma because you really you see the poverty of the Bateses. You see that Jane is preoccupied with things that are outside of Emma's purview. You see Frank genuinely struggling internally with emotions that uh, you, you're not privy to, but are obviously really setting him off right now. So I think Jane's performance is consistent with this idea that Emma's not getting everything from the people around her. I think it makes for a very, very vulnerable, sweet, and very sympathetic Jane. Yeah. Speaking of Jane, she gets her letter back and she's reading it and looking happy. And Miss Bates is like, oh, what's that? I would love to read it. Is it from Ireland? And Jane's like, no, I'll read it to you later. And she like keeps it close to her chest, um, which we again like see that she's kind of being pressed in upon by her surroundings, but also poor Miss Bates because she just like is so bumbling. I don't know. Mm. The Miss Bates moment after Jane rejects her is so telling because she kind of takes a beat smiling to herself like it's the smiles like frozen on her face for a second before she refreshes back to being cheerful, quote unquote. Mm. And the rejection of her niece, you can feel that hurt her in the moment and then her reset and be like, no, it's fine. Jane's my perfect angel. I'm good. Let's let's walk around and talk to my mother. It's a subtle moment, but that really got me. Yeah. So then we go to the party and Emma is like begging John to be pleasant at the party. And I was again, I don't think it's warranted because he's being so pleasant. (laughs) They go into the party and he tells Jane that he hopes that she didn't get wet on her way to the post office and that her letters weren't bringing terrible news. And she was like, well, your letters are all of business. Mine are of. And then she looks off into the middle distance and smirks to herself and goes, friendship. Then after that, John Knightley goes, oh, friendship. That's worse. (laughs) And then Emma gives him this little look and then he kind of like jumps his eyebrows at her. And I was like, "Okay, John, I see you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) They have kind of a sweet brotherly, sisterly rapport going, which I enjoy. I think it's a nice addition. So Mrs. Elton hears that Jane went to the post office in the rain and she's like, oh, my God, no way. You sad girl. We have to rectify this. My guy will come and pick up your mail and bring it to you. And Jane says, excuse me. I would rather you didn't. I will not consent to your servant being inconvenienced or whatever. And Mrs. Elton is like, oh, what? No, no. And Emma stands up for her, for Jane, saying, well, you know, a morning walk can be nice. And there's the issue of privacy. And Mrs. Elton is affronted that Emma would think that she would ever read someone else's mail. But while she's like kind of muttering about how uncivilized the country folk are, Jane turns to Emma and gives her this little thank you under her breath, which is a very sweet moment of solidarity between them. And again, in this adaptation, I'm really rooting for their friendship. So I hope that they end up friends in the end. Their friendship? The thing that history will call friendship. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Their gal palhood. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) After dinner, Mrs. Elton is 
trying to tell Jane that she's going to get her a job and Jane is still trying to reject Mrs. Elton's help and she's like looking to Emma trying to be like, can you jump in again? And then the men come in and Mrs. Elton says, oh, here comes my old beau. This is from the books, but it continues to be one of my like favorite slash least favorite moments. It's very cringy. She's like, look how he comes to walk directly towards me. And he's not walking towards her at all. I just think it's so powerful that Jane Austen also experienced someone going, oh, it's my old boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Enough to write it down. Yeah. It's what makes her work timeless is that people have always been that irritating. <laughs> well, that is the best thing about like a moment like that is you just go, wow, Jane, not only did Jane get it, but we've been the same. We've been the same kind of annoying, just in a different dress. Yeah, people have always sucked and have always fallen in love and have always been socially awkward. Mm -hmm. And have always said things like, oh, my God, it's my boyfriend. I love him. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She's talking about how she hates the idea of being over trimmed. She's like, but what do you think of this dress? I don't like I don't want it to be too extravagant. And Jane gives this little smirk and we see Emma and Mrs. Weston also kind of smirking. And I just really love them kind of all being on the same wavelength here. Then Mr. Weston comes in with a letter announcing that Frank is coming back and they're going to be able to have their ball after all. Cut to the ball. And Emma comes in and she is just in awe of how beautiful the space is. And this ball, it's giving less extravagance than the ball in a lot of other adaptations is giving and her awe at it really highlights the fact that they do not do this here. It like feels like what they must have actually been like because sometimes you see period pieces and you're like I don't know I've been to weddings where like this amount of staff would have cost (laughs) and like yes there were very rich people but you see sometimes I don't know sometimes the scenes in Bridgerton you're like this is insane And then to see a ball that is like people throwing a party, it feels realistic to what that actual ball would have been. It's not like a royal wedding. Right. And sometimes it's just like friends throwing a party and then there's 5,000 butlers and you're like, what? This is not the world that we're in right now. So this felt very authentic to what the ball would have been. Totally. Especially because it takes place in an inn and not like at Emma's estate. So they're not going to have like all of the decorations and the Westons are throwing it, not Emma. So it's like with a little bit lesser means and and it is, it's quainter and definitely feels more realistic. Kind of like the ball at the beginning of Pride and Prejudice 2005 where Darcy and Bingley come in and they're like, oh, a country ball. Yeah. But it feels kind of like that. As opposed to the Netherfield ball in the 2005 Pride and Prejudice, which is very ornate. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because Emma is the richest person in Highbury, but I don't think that she's on Netherfield level. Is that, would that be correct? No, I think she's definitely on Netherfield level. I don't know if she's on Pemberley level, Mm -hmm. but she's definitely extremely wealthy. But I think it's more like there is a difference between, for example, a person who grows up on the Upper East Side in a penthouse in Manhattan And someone who grows up as the richest person in their teensy, tiny town in Rockland County. Like, 
you can be really sheltered and really rich at the same time. Yeah. And because of Emma's circumstances, where she is in the world and how much care her father requires, no matter how wealthy she is, she doesn't leave Highbury. And Highbury is not itself a super fancy town. She's just one of the only fancy people in that town. It's really like her and Knightley are like really the fancy people. Mm -hmm. And then... There's like a layer of people beneath them who they are still down to socialize with. And then it goes sort of down the totem pole as as it goes. But Emma and Knightley are wealthy enough to ha attend balls a lot. And I'm sure Knightley does a lot of social gathering in London when he visits. But she simply just doesn't have the infrastructure around her to live as fancily as someone in London might. Totally. So Frank comes over to greet Emma at the ball and he like the only thing he says is that he's excited to meet Mrs. Elton and then he walks away and Emma thinks to herself that he's not in love with her anymore and she doesn't care. So I think that Emma falling out of love with Frank is a very complicated thing to get right. <laughs> and they just really just said it. They were like, eh, OK, we talked about how other film adaptations really botch that mm -hmm. and don't tell you that Emma's not in love with Frank anymore. Mm -hmm. So I'm okay with her being like, is he in love with me? He's not. Okay, I'm cool. Yeah. I wanted to note, uh, much in the vein of what we've been talking about, Emma is very simply dressed at this ball in like a kind of like normal pink dress. She looks lovely. But I thought one costuming choice that was clearly made is that Mrs. Elton is also in a pink dress and in a much more ornate pink dress. And they clearly wanted them to be kind of wearing the same outfit. <laughs> yeah. When Jane arrives, she comes to Emma and she's also very similarly in awe of the room. She's like, this is like a dream. Then the Westons realize that Mrs. Elton will want to lead the dance and they decide that, well, first they say that Frank should dance with Mrs. Elton and Frank's like, no, 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 I'm dancing with Emma. So they have Mr. Weston agreed to dance with her because Mrs. Weston says, well, I can't dance in my condition. This cannot be how she tells her best friend that she's pregnant. She already, Emma has to know already, right? Yeah, I think it might just be how she's telling the audience she's pregnant. Okay, because Emma looks at her belly and makes like big eyes like, <gasps> and then immediately lets it go. So I was nervous for a minute <laughs> that that was how she was finding out. It's a fun way. I, you know, pregnancy reveals nowadays on Instagram, you know, yet another thing Jane Austen was commenting on back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. So uh, at the start of each dance, Mrs. Elton announces the dance name, which I kind of liked as a little historical touch. And Knightley is watching Emma dancing and kind of smiling and looking a little bit in love. And Emma and Mrs. Elton have to like brush hands and Mrs. Elton flings Emma's hand off of her and Emma glares at her and it's like this such a small moment but it's so funny and then after the first dance Emma runs over to scold Knightley for not dancing and when Frank comes and pulls her away his face falls <laughs> and he gets a little jealous and watches them dancing you can see him getting more and more jealous before they start dancing though Frank is staring at Jane and he tells Emma that Jane's hair looks bad. And he's like, why would she ever do her hair like that? And they're just being so shitty. And the next dance is very like lively and fun. And kind of like you were saying earlier, Zachary, like it really just shows how exciting dancing was for them without 
trying to modernize it or anything. They really do it um, in a way that feels historically accurate. I don't know if it's historically accurate, but I'm assuming it is. But they're just having the best time with it. I also, uh, while we're talking about the dancing, the funny thing about putting this on is I I have a writing playlist that's just like a random playlist I listen to on Spotify. And so I have this, I'm familiar with all these songs from listening to them. And then the theme of this miniseries is fully on my writing playlist. Oh my God. And I was like, whoa. So when they did the dancing, I thought it was really clever that they have the theme being played by the band live as they're dancing. And I thought, oh, that's a really great choice with this. I, I really like that. It gives like meaning behind the theme that mm-hmm. we've been hearing the whole time to be like Emma and Knightley dancing during the theme. It's like, oh, this is the Emma and Knightley music that's playing. Mm. As opposed to Knightley has his own theme. Emma has her own theme. Mm. Mrs. Elton has her own theme. But when that song plays, it's, oh, these two are dancing together. Mm. They are falling in love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but back to like the Emma being sheltered piece of it the other thing that jumped out to me this time watching was how much they bring up emma's dancing skills Mm -hmm. and the fact that jane fairfax is more accomplished as a musician but emma's the dancer Mm -hmm. of the crew and it occurs to me that she would not have had a lot of opportunity to even show off this accomplishment ever so the i think for me what sells the dancing so hard is like the music is beautiful and obviously everyone who's dancing has a really good time. But I think particularly Ramala Garai's performance of having just an amazing time dancing showcases like, oh, she never gets to experience this kind of joy to show the world like this is what I love to do. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. It's funny. For some reason, I just it made me think of Frances Ha when you were talking about that. I don't know, <laughs> it like sort of it. there's the maybe because Rama Lagarai has sort of like a uh, Greta Gerwig, Greta Gerwig vibe, vibe yeah, to her, I but like definitely see that the like joy of dancing made me think of Frances Ha and how like she whenever she does it she lights up and um, that sort of feels like this Emma. That is an incredibly good connection. I think that's exactly what it is. It's that Frances Ha, I'm only myself while I'm dancing thing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in miniature, which is you know Rama Lagarai just channeling joy through. These like little country dances that are clearly very period accurate. I actually don't know if they're period accurate. Listeners tell me if they are. Well, some of the music, our listeners were in the discord, like talking about the music and one of the songs they changed the name to. So I think all of the songs are like historical dance songs. And the one they changed the name to was not Jenny's Market, as it was called in the show but it was actually called Jenny's Maggot and they were like maybe we'll call it something that sounds more pleasant I guess <laughs> I don't know but so I think that it is historically um, at least a little bit accurate so during this lively and fun dance is when Mr. Elton snubs Harriet uh, he's walking around trying to find someone to dance with him and he gets turned down first by his wife then by Mrs. Weston and Mrs. Goddard and of course They're like, well, what about Harriet? She's right there. And he's like, no, no, my dancing days are over. And he's like bopping along to the music as he says, my dancing days are over. (laughs) And then uh, everyone witnesses this because the room is small. Emma sees it happen and she's very distressed. And Mr. Knightley sees Emma being distressed about it and goes over to save Harriet. And when he gives Harriet his hand, she like gets so excited and she jumps up to go dance. And he's like, no, 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 we got to wait for the moment. And he holds her back. And it's so cute. 
And then they go out and dance and they're having the best time. And Knightley is so into it. <laughs> He's just like doing the little doop, 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 doop. And it's- this is an audio medium, Molly. <laughs> It's that little thing where he has his arms out like crossed and he's like dances around in a little circle around himself. It's very lively and adorable. Yeah. Then we cut to dessert or the end of dessert and we have this like phallic dessert. Is it just a penis jello? Like, is that just jello? Yeah. Well, it's topped with Jello. I think it's probably got a cake base based on everything I know from the Great British Baking Show. It's probably like a layer of sponge with some mousse and topped with a jelly strawberries on the side. But it does look like a penis, right? <laughs> yes, I think we can all agree it was a penis. And there's just like the focus on it as they bring it out. So I don't think this is spotted dick, which I do know <laughs> is a British dish. That's like a steam pudding, I think, a spotted dick. Yes, yeah, they've made it on the Great British Baking Show before. I think it has raisins in it. Yes. Ah, man, there are too many British desserts with raisins in them. <laughs> That's my my biggest gripe <laughs> with British cuisine. <laughs> Actually, that is not my biggest gripe with British cuisine. <laughs> I was going to say, raisins feel like pretty inoffensive compared to what it could be. I think the thing about raisins, and this is a complete tangent, is that they, they're not chocolate chips and they can't be chocolate chips. Mm. And I never want them to not be chocolate chips. It's not that they're the worst tasting thing in the universe, although I do not enjoy dried fruit. It's that when I bite into it and it's not chocolate, it makes it so disappointing. I understand. Yeah. But we're jumping around. Uh, we're skirting around my favorite part of Emma. So so we're getting off the dick jello. Yes. Let's move away from the dick jello and <laughs> on to Knightley sipping his wine and brooding while staring at Frank Churchill angrily. And Emma comes over and she says, thank you. And he's like, for what? And she says, your secret is out. And he has this panicked look in his eye, like, what secret? And then she says, well, you're you're you dance better than everyone. And he's like, oh, and then relief like floods his face like she doesn't know I'm in love with her. (laughs) And she admits that he was right about Mr. Elton. And they like are giggling about how he sucks about Mr. Elton and when it's time to dance again, Emma screams that she's ready to dance, like, to the whole room. She's like, I am ready, sir. And then Mr. Knightley says, well, who will you dance with? And she says, why you, if you will ask me. And there's this, like, innocent look in her face of, like, oh, my God. And his eyes just light the fuck up. And his line reading of will you dance with me, if that's exactly what he says. I can't remember exactly what he, he says. Will you dance, dear Emma? Yes. I was like, this actor can get it because yes. he he that line is such a simple line and he filled it with like the history of an entire novel. Mm-hmm. And if you still ask the question of your favorite line reading, I have another one. But that was my silver medal for my favorite line reading is incredible. Oh, yeah, because she says with you, if you will ask me and to her, it's like the most obvious response. But after she says with you, you see this look in her eyes like, what if he says no? So she mm-hmm. says, if you will ask me. And he stops, puts down his glass first because he's like, I need to give this woman my full attention because that's what she deserves. And he offers his hand and he says, will you dance, will you dance? dear Emma? Oh, mm. oh. Another quick tangent, really quick side note. Do you know who Johnny Lee Miller's most prevalent ex is? Angelina Jolie. Mm. 
What? They're on good terms, apparently, but they were married. When? Pre-Brad, I think. Like, Girl Interrupted? Or where are we in Angelina Jolie's career? They were married from 1996 till 2000. Hackers. They were they were in Hackers together. Yeah. Well, all I'm saying is that, like, he is... I find Johnny Lee Miller extremely handsome, hmm. but in, like, sort of a stern British daddy kind of way. Yeah. And... You see glimmers of how he looks at her, and you're like, "No, yeah, yeah, he could get Angelina Jolie, hundred <laughs> percent, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah." So then we get their dance, and the entire time, all I could think is that he is the definition of biting back a smile. Like I'm never sure what people mean when they say biting back a smile, but you can see in the pinch of the corners of his lips and how they're like sort of turning up. Like he just want he is glowing inside. And this dance is so romantic, but it's also so simple comparatively to some of the other adaptations of romantic dances we've seen in Jane Austen movies, because sometimes they go really far with it and the rest of the room melts away and all of this stuff. And in this, it's like it's so simple, but it's so beautiful because of the way they're looking at each other and the way they slowly soften into it. And Zachary, as you mentioned, this is where the theme music plays and it sort of swells Mm. up. And I can't watch this scene without like vocally swooning. (laughs) It's not as like charged sexually as some of the other dances, but there's just something so warm. It's like, oh, they've come home to each other. Mm -hmm. One more thing about the dance and then we'll move on. But if you watch like his eyes during it, they keep flickering away and then back to her like he doesn't want to lose eye contact and he doesn't want to break the moment but also part of him is like panicking and he's like oh my god and then he has to look back at her it's just so subtle and so well done and it's like she's like the sun to him because like the joy emanating off her face while she's dancing he like he almost he needs to be looking at it but he can't at the same time something that i always think is so interesting about emma versus pride and prejudice is in pride and prejudice so much of their relationship is like incubated when they're apart and in Emma so much of it is when they're together and I just think it's such a it's so cool that she didn't rely on the same like romantic trope for two of the books because oh god I'm gonna embarrass myself if I'm wrong but I think this is what she wrote after maybe I'm wrong I can't remember the order I'm forgetting but I have this weird feeling that she wrote Emma after Pride and Prejudice and I could be totally wrong no, you're right about that. Okay, I was going to say, cut it out if I'm wrong. But... She wrote Emma, she started writing it in 1814 and finished in 1815. Okay, and Pride and Prejudice is 1813. Uh, I was just so struck that like so much of Knightley and Emma's, it's like a, it's such a slower burn because they're always, they're, they're, they're with each other more in what we see. And um, I think that's so fascinating to play with that aspect as opposed to like running into each other and having these, big rushes of emotion because they see each other. It's like, no, it's happening when they're next to each other slowly, like glacial. Yes. I love a slow burn or a slow melt. Mm. (laughs) What's that phrase? Slowly, then all at once. Mm. So the idea that, you know, incrementally they're falling in love with each other and they, in ways that they don't even notice. And Mm. then when it hits them, it hits them like a ton of bricks. Yeah. Yeah. You know what it is? They're inevitable. Mm. So, 
when we were reading Sense and Sensibility, Molly, as you may recall, was uh, very team Eleanor and Brandon as like friends to lovers. And I was like, just trust me. <laughs> Austin has it covered. <laughs> Austin has it covered. Don't worry. Different book. <laughs> yes. Yes. So then we have this scene of Emma playing the piano and Frank riding through the town on his horse and Harriet is walking through the woods talking to her friend and then Emma finishes playing the piano and she walks through her house and she sees Harriet outside being carried by Frank and she runs outside arms flailing with her claw hands like Harriet again audio medium but like her arms are just like flailing around and Harriet recounts the story of being attacked in the woods by a bunch of children and she's like they were villainous and evil and terrible and it's like you got knocked over by some kids and Emma is shocked because she says and she said this at the beginning too she's like the roads outside of Highbury are safe like I don't know how this could have happened so I really think that this movie or this series is leaning into the fact that Harriet is way overblowing this story. Yeah, I was going to say something that this story does, which I haven't seen in a lot of other Austin adaptations, is we've talked about this a little bit, but like during the book, the the Romani people scene, it's not clear whether or not Austin thought this was a genuinely scary event or was making fun of these provincial people who thought a few, you know, poor Roma people were going to hurt them. I think this adaptation kind of makes the subtle choice to make it so that we're getting only the dramatization from Harriet's point of view and not actually what happened. Because mm-hmm. um, the the swelling music and the way that Harriet's describing it, it all comes from Harriet's perspective in sort of like the same way that we got the Jane and Knightley hanging out, like romantically perspective from Mrs. Weston. Mm-hmm. So it's subtly done, but I think this adaptation is trying to say that Harriet's dramatizing the situation because it's almost more about the rescue Mm -hmm. in this one than it is about the attack or whatever we want to call it yes absolutely because she needs a big attack to have been rescued Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. so heroically yes Yes. and they don't shy away from the fact that it's clearly like children being like please give us money yeah harriet takes frank's hand and pulls it to her chest and says i owe you my life and of course, Emma is like, oh, my God, like they're in love. Harriet's about to fall in love with Frank. And of course, later that day, Harriet burns the pencil that she kept from Mr. Elton writing in his notebook and she stole the pencil. And I realized we never got the gauze moment. We didn't get the gauze. She just has her one little treasure and she burns it. And the timing is just so exact that, of course, Emma is going to think that she's in love with Frank Churchill. Also, when Harriet tells Emma that she'll never marry and Emma's like, is it because you think the person you love is too high above you? She looks out the window at Frank Churchill and they're both looking at Frank Churchill while Harriet's saying, no, it's about someone like, you know, he's so much better than Mr. Elton. And she's like looking out the window at Frank Churchill. And again, it's not really Emma's fault that she's wrong here. And again, Emma says, well, my matchmaking days are over, but... I approve of the man. We won't say his name. There will be no chance of us, of me getting involved. There won't be any mistakes, but he's a very good choice for you. This is like really one of the, when she says we won't exchange names, so there'll be no chance of mistake. I swear I heard the Crave Your Enthusiasm song play. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like a dun, dun, dun. Later, Jane 
Mrs. Elton, Emma, and Mrs. Weston are having tea while Knightley is sitting on the ground playing with a dog. The dog was spectacular, but we need to take a moment to talk about Mrs. Elton's outfit here. Oh, yes, please. So there was a parasol, which you've written down, but I think it cannot go without saying that she wears the worst hat I've ever seen in my life. I don't remember the hat. It's like a bright pink mesh bonnet with a little like visor on the top of it. Oh my God. It's like, I cannot explain what's happening. I think it was also around this scene that it dawned on me that Harriet's hair, it was driving me crazy the whole time. I was like, what does this remind me of? What does this remind me of? And this, I think this scene was when I realized it's fully giving me Glinda and Wicked (gasps) curls. Yes. Yes. It's giving me like Kristen Chenoweth and Wicked curly blonde put a tiara on it and give her a bubble and like we're in a different story you're (laughs) so right just those tiny curls that come to like her cheekbones it's crazy yeah no you're completely right it needs to be remarked upon that I I can't with these curls they are supposedly period accurate and nobody else's hair in this adaptation is period accurate except Harriet's but it's so jarring and noticeable because of that and it is very I've been trying to figure out what it reminds me of but Glinda the Good Witch in specifically Christian Chenoweth in the original Broadway production of Wicked yeah with the like framed curls Mm -hmm. around the front oh yeah happy 20 years to Wicked everybody happy 20 years maybe we need a side-by-side meme oh yes (laughs) yes so Emma hints at Knightley that they're thinking that he and Jane that he loves Jane and he's like oh so you've heard the gossip have you and Emma goes mm-hmm she's like biting on her thumb while she's saying this or like her finger she's like mm-hmm and he says listen I'm not about to marry Jane she wouldn't have me if I asked and they're like oh and he says but she's not my type anyway she has a very reserved personality and I like a more open temper and then he throws the ball to the dog and goes off to play with the dog. And Mrs. Weston says the lady doth protest too much, methinks, because he is too obsessed with being not in love that he's probably in love. And Emma's like, okay, whatever. Back at home, Knightley walks into a room and pauses and we get this like pan behind his back. And then we see a shot of Emma at the ball dancing And then we go back to his face. And this is where I was like, this is Luke can see her face for all of our Gilmore Girls girlies out there. Uh, The episode where he, yes, thank you. Um, The episode where (laughs) he's listening to his audiobook of the self-help and he like, is like, oh my God, it's Lorelai. She's the one that I always want to go to with my my happy news and my sad news. I mean, basically, Knightley and Emma, we've said it before, I'll say it again. They are Luke and Lorelai of the 19th century. It's so perfect. It's so true. <laughs> oh, that I had not thought of that until you put that in my mind. And I, I'm going to go now because I need to go process that. For... <laughs> this was great. I have to go uh, take a nap. Thank you. That concludes this episode. <laughs> wow. Leaving early so that we can all just sit and ruminate. And then Colin Firth's face will appear before each of us like the 1995 Pride and Prejudice and yes. be like, excuse me. Emma and Knightley are the Luke and Lorelai of the 19th century. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. 
Then we get Emma standing and staring out a window brutally, and Knightley comes in. Not and- brutally. Broody. Broody? Brutally sounds like B-R-U-T-A. Oh. <laughs> brutally standing at the window. She's brooding. Broodily. <laughs> and she says to the ether, Isabella has had five children. And Knightley goes, this is true. And I don't know why, but I laughed out loud. I just think it's so funny. And then she says, do you think it's odd that I've never gone to any of their births as her only sister? I've never gone to London to visit her. And he says well, I don't know, like, do you think it's weird? And she says, well, I think that it might look weird to the outside eye. Like, I love Highbury. I don't want to leave, but other people might think it's weird. And he's like, I'm surprised you care what other people think. And she says, even Jane Fairfax has friends and the desire to be with them. And he says, you know what I think? I think you need a project. And she lights up and she starts saying she wants to take everyone to Box Hill. And you can see how happy it makes her and then how happy it makes him to have made her so happy. And the music swells and it's just so spoon worthy. And then cut to Augusta being like, oh my gosh, Box Hill, I will plan the whole thing. The second uh, fascinating choice of like the swiping camera to her direct address and the swish, like the whip pan, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. And the her just talking to the camera as if she is being interviewed. Out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make any sense, but I love it. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. And then Emma's complaining about how, oh, I wish Mr. Weston hadn't told the Eltons. This is going to suck. And then her carriage horse is injured so nobody can go and she ruins everything. And then Knightley says, well, while we wait for her horse to be better, why don't we all go to Donwell? And then we cut Back to Augusta. She's like, oh, that'll be great. I'll wear a pink bow. No, she says, I'll wear a large bonnet and put a pink ribbon on my basket. It remains, let's go apple picking. When do we want to go apple picking? <laughs> oh my God, we can wear flannel. Yeah, it's going to be so cute. We have to get pig. So they're all walking together. It's them, um, like Knightley, Emma, Harriet, the Eltons, the Westons, everyone. And they're talking about how are they going to get to Box Hill? when they see Mr. Perry riding by on his horse. And Frank says that Perry was supposed to be getting a carriage and maybe he could help us. And Mrs. Weston's like, I didn't know he was getting a carriage. And he's like, yeah, you told me. And then Jane is like, (coughs) and starts having (laughs) coughing fit. And he's like, oh, it was a mistake. A mistake to not drink some water before we came on this walk. And uh, you can see that he's like struggling now. He's like, oh, fuck, I almost slipped up because we know that Jane told him about the plan with the carriage. And so he suggests they go play their game of letters. And he he says it would be good to feel like a child again. And Knightley says some of us don't need to look too far. (laughs) Burn. Johnny Lee Miller also plays Knightley's disdain for Frank Churchill to pitch perfection. Mm -hmm. So good. So they go inside and they're playing the alphabet game, which is like putting a word in the wrong order and having someone guess what it says. But they don't do a very good job mixing up the letters. No. (laughs) It's like instead of blundered, it says blundred. (laughs) And instead of Dixon, it says Dixno. (laughs) (laughs) So they're kind of obvious. We get the moment where Mrs. Elton says she'll handle the invites to the Donwell party. And he says, Knightley says, um, no, Mrs. Knightley is the only woman who can invite people to Donwell. And the whole room freezes <laughs> when he says Mrs. Knightley. 
then Frank tries to spell blunder and send it to Jane. And she's like, I don't want to play this game. But it's clear he's trying to maybe apologize for slipping up earlier. But then he does Dick Snow or Dixon. And Emma's like, no, 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 no. Like, not in front of everyone. That's embarrassing. Like, don't do it. This is a great instance of those like games being played between Frank and Jane because their relationship's secret because Frank is trying to apologize for messing up and Jane's not having it. And then Frank kind of gets all touchy and upset. And then he makes the Dixon joke. Right. So while I was watching it this time, I was like, he kind of can't win because when he tries to apologize or like be nice, she's not having it. And when he goes the other way, it's also not good. So he's kind of in an impossible situation here. And herein lies the most sympathetic reading of Frank Churchill Mm -hmm. as a character. Mm. And again, it's not really explored much in most like film adaptations because for some reason, in most adaptations, the Frank and Jane storyline gets a lot of shortening. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's the first to hit get the axe. Yeah, so having the breathing room of the whole TV series length of the, the adaptation allows the Frank and Jane story, which is complicated and intense, to kind of breathe. And you you get these nuances and Frank is not so assassinated as a character. He's still an asshole and not dealing with emotions properly. But you can see genuine hurt and genuine care in his performance. Yeah. So Jane, when he spells Dixon, gets up and leaves and the party is over. And after everyone's gone, Emma's like stoking the fire and taking care of the house. And Knightley comes in and asks about Dixon. And Emma's like, I can't tell you. You'll call me a gossip. And he says, OK, well, are you sure you understand the relationship between Frank and Jane? Because I think I'm picking up on something between them. And Emma's like, no way. And then she claw hands him into a chair. She- <laughs> <laughs> She's like, here, take a seat with her hands like claws. Wait, wait, hold, hold, hold. I got this. I'm going to make a little collage of your claw hands. (laughs) Thank you. She tells him to sit down and she says, listen, Jane has an admirer and we're just trying to figure out who. It's just a little game. And then she's like, but listen, why do you dislike Frank? Like, just because you dislike him, that's no reason to start imagining all sorts of things about him that aren't true. And then she says, I know you want to protect me as an older brother would. And when she says that, he visibly flinches because he does not want to be called her older brother. And she says, if Frank was attached to Jane, he would never, and kind of trails off. And then Knightley says, he would never share a little joke with you. I think implying that they're flirting too publicly. And she gets pissed. And she goes, I can vouch for his indifference to Miss Fairfax, believe me, which kind of uh, implies that there's something more between them that like she trusts, she knows him better than anyone else. And... She snaps at him and then tries to pull it back because she thinks maybe she's taken it too far. And she says, are you staying for supper? And he says, no, the fire is too warm for me tonight. And then he leaves. And then they like look back at each other like they're in a fight again. And and it, uh, and then he leaves. And that's the end of that episode. Which is so refreshing when it's the fact that it's a miniseries because you know, it's this is the closest we get to a chapter ending. And this moment is highlighted by ending here. And in so many of the films, it's, it's you know, you can't give it the weight that this gives it. I was so happy that the episode ended with this because it's such a, it's, it's an important moment. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, it definitely it gives weight to the Frank and Jane story, which I've belted from the rooftops I love about this adaptation. Mm -hmm. But I think it also gives weight to the conflict within Knightley. And for him, this moment is confirmation of a certain lack of hope in his affections for Emma. And it's honestly, this moment's usually cut from adaptations. It's not usually in it, but it, I agree. Like highlighting it gives weight to this moment in the story and makes it a turning point. Yeah. All right. That brings us to Becca's study questions. Finding our way to the end of the episode. Everyone good? We've been talking for a while. A long time. <laughs> I didn't realize I had so much to say about this one. I mean, yeah, that this was juicy. This was meaty. This There's a lot of good TV here. And um, also some bizarre fashion choices. All right. So first question, best line delivery. For me, it was Mr. Woodhouse um, when they are talking about uh, it's in between Augusta's two like direct addresses when Emma's upset that Mr. Elton's coming and she's like, and then the carriage isn't going to be there. And then oh, she, Emma says, I was so looking forward to our trip to Box Hill. And Mr. Woodhouse says, I don't know, dear Emma, it seems to me always best to never contemplate eating outside as he shuts the door. <laughs> An excellent, excellent choice. Incredible choice. I also have a Mr. Woodhouse quote, which is when they're talking about the ball at the Crown Inn. And he says, you must wrap up warm, Emma, in case the young dancers do something absolutely reprehensible, like opening a window. Mm. So you guys took my gold and my silver. But <laughs> I love that because the <laughs> Mr. Woodhouse quietly winning this episode in his nightcap. Yes. But I think then I would have to also give it to, because we've said it before, I'll say it again. Will you dance, dear Emma? <laughs> uh, also, the line where Miss Bates says that Harriet's a wonderful dancer and such a pretty young girl. I love that. Not only because it was well delivered and the woman playing Miss Bates does a great job, but also because then it immediately cuts to the actress playing Harriet sort of fudging the dance moves. And it's a perfect moment. <laughs> I love it. All right. Notable changes from book to film. I mean, I don't know if this is necessarily a change, but it's um, I, I just think like the choice to have Emma talking to herself so much felt like we got a window into the character that even though, I mean, the book is from her perspective. So it feels like a natural extension to have her do that. But it just felt like a, a really refreshing choice for me, even though it felt a little wild. I, I really was into it. Yeah. Um, I think for me now, I know that this is an exact opposition to something that I've said on a previous uh, notable edition or whatever, because in a previous episode, I said that I preferred, we've talked about this already, but that I preferred a crotchety John Knightley to a mean one or something like that. You said something about him being sour versus being mean. Yeah. So I thought it was more book accurate for him to be kind of mean and grumpy, but I'm really glad that in this one, he's kind of having fun and is like, he's more of a jokester and uh, it is more similar to some of the portrayals we've seen of him in other adaptations, but I love that portrayal of him and I love that we're getting my John Knightley back. <laughs> I mean, I will take John Knightley in any form, but you're right. This particular performance has room for range. He can be grumpy. He can be sassy. He can be fun. He can be a jokester. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, my notable adaptation change is Jane Fairfax's relationship to Mrs. Elton. Oh, yes. Because mm. I think in the books, you get the sense that Jane is trapped being polite and sweet to this woman. She calls on her all the time. And it's not until she and Frank are engaged that she kind of gets to tell her to piss off. I like that in this adaptation, she's got a little bite and you can tell how hard she's resisting hanging out with Mrs. Elton. And it kind of gives Jane and Emma some premature bonding, which is nice. Yeah. Because then it kind of also sets up a little bit more sadness for later when she kind of snubs her aunt and gets Jane really mad at her. You were already rooting for them to be best friends. So I think that's a good change. Mm -hmm. All right. Worst thing in the episode. Just the fact that Elton feels like Mr. Elton feels like I think you said this on a previous episode. He just feels like he's from the CW in in it just every time he comes on screen. I just am taken out so hard. I'm like, no, no longer in the world of the story. He looks so because he because he looks modern for 2009, which now feels dated, but it's dated in a different way that everything else is dated. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I think he's very attractive, but it just is like really like a a left field choice. And it. Oh, yeah. Is wild. Yeah, I, I think apologies to our one listener who got very upset with me for comparing Mr. Elton to Hook from Once Upon a Time, Killian Coyle. Um, but he does look like that. Yeah. I don't think they act the same, although I would argue that, you know, they both have character flaws. Mr. Elton's are clearly worse, but it's definitely that the look that is clearly pulled out of that era of television and definitely jarring. Mine is also costume related. It's that bonnet that Mrs. Elton wears. I don't know if it's historically accurate. I don't care if it's historically accurate. I will send you both a screenshot as soon as this is over. It triggers my fight or flight instinct. It's so bad. <laughs> Amazing. I don't really have any complaints about this episode. I watched it like four times. It's so good. But if I had to pick anything, I would say that when they're playing the alphabet tiles game, they could have mixed up the letters more <laughs> to make it a little bit less obvious. I think it might be book accurate that they're that bad at the game, but they, <laughs> it is so dumb. So dumb. Okay, best part of this adaptation. You know, I really, we didn't talk about her much this episode, but I really, really love Mrs. Uh, Miss Bates in this one. There's something so vulnerable about this choice and... Sometimes they go for really fun. And I just I was concerned for Miss Bates every time she came on screen here. And I enjoyed that take on her. Yeah. Oh, when she's like talking about how good the food is at the ball and they come over to give her dessert and she's like, oh, no coffee for me, but some tea. It's just like so pure. Yeah. And I'm kind of happy that. We're not talking about Box Hill. Uh, <laughs> I'm not looking like forward to it. it. I I haven't watched part four yet, but I can't imagine. Without giving too much away, I don't think this is, it, because this is so obviously true, it is devastating. Oh. Oof, oof. All right. Yeah. Gearing up for that one. Um, <laughs> My favorite thing, I guess, from this episode would be, I think I've said it before. Four, I'll say it again. I really like the performances of Frank and Jane, and I really like the fleshing out of that story in this one. I think it makes for a more interesting story for Emma to have their story better fleshed out. Yeah, absolutely. 
Mine is the dance between Emma and Mr. Knightley. So romantic. Swoonworthy in every sense. Ugh. Yes. Who wins the episode? It's the first thing we see in this episode. Won it for me is I'm going to call back to I love Mr. Knightley's boots. <laughs> and he really showed him off in so many shots. And I just was like, I like I just went on this whole train of thought where I was like, I wish men wore like nice boots in the way that they did because women wear them. And I just think that men look incredible in boots and we don't really wear them in this society unless mm-hmm. you're like an official officer or something. And just bring back the boots is what I say. That one for me. Yes. Justice for the boots. <laughs> men, you heard him. We're bringing back the boots. <laughs> We, we've decided on Pot and Prejudice here today. Right here. <laughs> the universal expert on men's footwear, Pot and Prejudice. Yes. Yes. That's, that is what we podcast about. Yes. <laughs> I will give this one to the band. I think that it was, Zachary brought this up during the episode, but hearing the music during the dance sequence felt very organic and told the story so nicely. Even hearing Emma play the song after the dance, before the Romani scene with Harriet, it just puts you in that place where you're feeling the joy of the music with the characters. Really well done. Yeah. I will give the win to Jane Fairfax because she stands up to Mrs. Elton so many times. And it's not really given its due. She's not given her due and her standing up to Mrs. Elton isn't given its due by Emma because she's like, oh, why does Jane put up with her? Why does she uh, let her be her friend like that? And Jane clearly does not want that. She clearly wants Emma to befriend her instead. She looks at Emma for help so many times. Um, but she also says like, no, I don't want your guy to come pick up my mail. No, I don't want you to find a job for me. So I'm going to give the win to her. Her going, excuse me. Yes. Iconic. Also, runner up, the swan that lives outside of Hartfield. Constantly. How a whole a whole B plot. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Emma's an unreliable narrator. She's in her own and she's not thinking about what the swan is doing on her property. The swan has a whole a whole other life that we don't get to see. Fun fact, Jane Fairfax is also engaged to that swan. So <laughs> All right, on that note, listeners, that concludes this slightly longer episode of Pod and Prejudice. Zachary, thank you so much for joining us. This was so much fun. Do you want to tell the people where they can find you? Yes, I'm really only on Instagram. Uh, I'm Thackeray Binks. The most amazing Instagram handle ever. (laughs) And uh, go listen to uh, Gay Pride and Prejudice. It's uh, free on Spotify. It's 10 episodes. It's a lot of fun. It's very good. If you've listened, listen again. If you haven't, come on in. And um, if you follow me on Instagram, there'll be more um, series coming out next year that I'm very excited about and can't wait. Awesome. So for next time, listeners, we're going to finish up our coverage of this wonderful miniseries. But until next time, stay proper. And start wearing boots. Boots! Yes! Specifically the men, start wearing boots. Men, wear your boots. I love it. Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by SpeechDoc Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com. 
To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.